me preguntas qué es lo más duro. The last time Brenda que... Alfaro saw her son Horacio was in 2015. <laughs> he was kidnapped. And he's been missing ever since. You asked me what's the hardest part about this. To live day by day. To live every day like... Like being dead alive. The days don't pass. The hours don't pass. When you realize a day has passed. This is your life in a way. You can't live... It doesn't let you live. And who cares about another day? Who cares about it if he's not here? That's a reality for many families in Mexico. Some are casualties of local gangs drug traffickers, and some even say Mexican authorities are responsible for disappearing people. The victims are from every part of society. Police officers, students, and anyone who criminal organizations think is a person of interest. In 2019, nearly 35,000 murders occurred in the country, according to data from the Mexican government. By the end of last year, more than 61,000 people were missing in Mexico. And more than 97% of that total have been missing since 2006. I'm Malika Pilal, and this is The Take. People are going missing in Mexico. But officials say the efforts to find them has so far uncovered only about 1,100 corpses in 873 unmarked graves. In the meantime, families are taking it upon themselves to find their missing relatives. Al Jazeera's John Holman spoke to a group of women who are searching for the bodies of their loved ones every weekend in hopes of finding closure. John Holman, why are people going missing in Mexico? The starting point is obviously that the country's, for more than a decade now, been going through a period of incredible violence. Just 2019, there were 95 people killed every day in the country. Uh, And that's different gangs and bigger criminal organizations battling over territory. It's also them extorting ordinary people when those people can't pay, killing them as well. It's also the government battling those criminal gangs. So there's lots of different actors here And obviously, a lot of ordinary Mexicans that are getting stuck in the middle of all this. Now, that perhaps says why people are being uh, killed. But we actually talked to someone uh, a while ago now from the Sinaloa cartel. This was last year. And he actually admitted to uh, killing people and disappearing them. That was part of his job to do away with the bodies. And he said that he does that because in Mexico, if there's no body, then there's no crime. And what he meant by that is that without the body, it's very hard to do a murder investigation. It's still obviously possible, but it makes it a lot harder. And that's why criminal gangs disappear people. And also it's been shown that the the Mexican authorities in some parts of the country disappear people because there's no way or it's very hard then to follow up on it. You went to Sinaloa and there you met a group of women who were looking for their loved ones. 
Yeah, these women are, are in a group called the Sabuesos Guerreras, and they're um, that, that sort of translates as warrior sniffer dogs, something like that. They're fairly incredible women, actually. They're they're all women, and they basically turn out most weekends. They meet at the house of one of the leaders of the group, and from there they they head out to the countryside basically, and they go digging to try and find the remains of of, of their relatives. It's just an incredibly hard thing to do. Can you tell us a little bit about how have those five years been looking for him? Well, it's been agonizing. It's been torture, like looking for a needle in a haystack. They obviously say that it's not what they want to do, but they have to do it because they don't get any help from authorities. They have to turn out themselves. You talked to several of the mothers, and one in particular uh, is named Isabel Cruz. She's looking for her missing son. So you you visited her in her office, which is also her home. Can you describe what that looks like and, and what that operation that she's running is like? Yeah, she she runs things, Isabel, almost, I think, almost sort of like a, a military operation from her house. And um, on the other side of her kitchen, she's just got an office that looks like a sort of military headquarters. She's got a map with lots of pins in it and different keys. The red dots indicate the bodies that we found. For example, we have two in the south area. The white ones are the ones that are incinerated. We found them, but they're completely incinerated. And then the charred ones are the black dots. Just incredibly sort of... um, I suppose, difficult themes represented on this map with these pins. And then, remember, underneath the map, there were some photos of different people, one of which was her son, who was a police officer, and has disappeared. She's trying to find him. And I asked her if there were any more photos, and she just basically emptied out of a bag just a a huge stash of photos onto her desk. So how does someone go about looking for a body underneath the ground? What is that process like? We went to an area basically off-road. A track led to it. And um, from there, we had to walk quite a way. And we went to sort of a quite a sort of godforsaken place by a sort of stagnant lagoon um, and with lots of thorny trees around there. And I said to her, why are we here? Why have you picked this spot? And she said, well, this is exactly the sort of place that they would hide bodies where they think that no one would go. So we're in this spot and Isabel got a sort of, it looks like a a pneumatic drill, but one without any electricity on it. It's basically like a a metal rod uh, with uh, a screw at the end and something so you can plunge it into the earth. It's very, very rudimentary. She stuck that in the earth, swiveled it round, and then after that she got it out and sniffed the end of it. And I asked her why she was sniffing the end. And she said, you you can smell if there's a rotten body underneath of the soil. You smell it first to see if it has a weird smell. Uh, and so that's what they do. They stick these rods in the ground and they, they sniff and that way they can see if there's a, there's a rotten body. It's just incredibly uh, rudimentary. Um, and there's groups doing this of civilians all across Mexico with similar sort of rudimentary uh, tools. That's what they've got. Mm. Who's training them? 
when we talked to Isabel, she said, I've had to train myself. We've had to train ourselves. They pass it on from one to the other. I remember she had saying, There's nobody teaching us. It's your own maternal instinct as a searcher. You have to use it like a hound, like a dog. You have to develop your own sense of smell. I've learned to be a lawyer, a police investigator, forensic expert, psychologist, anthropologist, a little bit of everything. I think all of us have learned about all of it and teach it to each other. I mean, they also, they don't just go and look in the earth. They're looking in prisons. Uh, they're looking in morgues. Um, they're just basically looking anywhere that their that their lost loved one might might turn up. But obviously, it's like a needle in a haystack. In your uh, video posted on Al Jazeera, you can see the women. You know, they've got gloves on. These like rubber gloves, and they're really digging in the dirt. They're, they're they look like they're searching for gold, but they're not. They're searching for body parts. Yeah, that was when they thought that possibly a body or parts of a body had got put in a stream, which was which was near the area that we that we were looking at, and they'd already got in the car. They obviously had this equipment, sort of homemade, huge sieves like you would use for panhandling, no? And so, the mother of of one of the disappeared that they and and they thought they might find him in the river was just basically there, and I think it was her nephews who were basically piling mud on top of the sieve, and then she was sorting through there trying to find a tooth or a bone fragment or a piece of jewelry, anything that she could that might identify her son. My best hope is to find a molar and to get it DNA tested. Once you find out something, then you get to rest. Otherwise, you're thinking, is he alive? What kind of life is he living? Where is he? Or if he's alive, is he suffering? I remember afterwards, we stopped for lunch. We were all gathered around eating some, some tacos that, that, that the um, ladies had brought with them. And it was uh, a woman's first time with the group. And she just started describing to them um, what had happened to her son. It was obviously cathartic. And she said that basically that he'd been... He was a fisherman and he'd been held up against a, a tree tied up there and tortured for three days and they didn't even kill him. I remember her saying that they just left him there to die on his own at the end of it. And those are the stories that those women are just dealing with hearing um, all the time. We had to deal with it, I suppose, for one day and it was just, um, you know, terrible. One of the things that we noticed and I felt pretty nervous about um, was that as these women were getting the equipment out of the um, out of the, the car and starting to look, motorbikes started to turn up. Um, the person would sort of pause and then just head off, rev the engine and head off. And I asked um, Isabel and the group, who are these people? And they said that they're cartel lookouts and they come to, uh, to see what we're doing. Um, obviously, they're not that keen on us finding the bodies that they buried, and there have been quite prominent civilian rescuers that have been that have been killed, and other ones that have told us that they've been threatened. If you go in that cave to look for uh, your brother, one of them told us um, you're going to get killed, so don't do it. 
Isabel, the leader of the Sabuesos Guerreras, has been motivated as an activist since her son, Yosimar Garcia Cruz, was forcibly taken from his home by men in masks. He was a police officer in Sinaloa, territory controlled by El Chapo's cartel. But even law enforcement couldn't help her. Was anyone successful? Did anyone find any clues as to where their missing relatives might be? Not on the trip when we went out with them. We have been on other trips with other groups where they've already found the mass grave and they've been digging through it. But on that trip, I think a couple of days before, a tooth had been found. But that was about it. I'm not sure how high the success rate is. I think in general in the country, the success rate isn't that high. What is the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, what is he doing about the missing? When um, Andres Manuel López Obrador first took up the presidency, I think one of the things that maybe people were almost relieved about was that at least the government was prepared to accept that there was a problem and were prepared to talk about it. The government said that there were going to be unlimited resources to deal with this and that they were going to set up a national search commission. Um, And they've actually just updated the number of forced disappearances from around 40,000 to 61,000. So that's a huge sort of jump. But I think talking to people on the ground, especially Isabel Cruz, who's the leader of this group, the Subwestos Guerreras, and I said, well, has anything changed? Have you had any help from this National Search Commission? I believe it is the same. They just change the name, change words. But in reality, it's us, the families, the ones who are going to look for them. The government is not going to do it. I believe everything is a government fabrication. He says that he's going to give us 40,000 who are missing. Where is he going to get so many bodies from? So it's now been a year that President López Obrador has been in power. Um, They're still obviously talking about this, um, but we've yet to say, I would say, huge advances in dealing with the problem. Even before we'd gone out with this group uh, of ladies, even at that point, sort of the tears were pricking at all of our eyes because it's one thing to know that your relative's been um, murdered perhaps and you can bury them and you can mourn them it's completely different to know that they're still out there that you don't know what's happened to them that you can't lay them to rest and I think that lack of closure is for me uh, in more than a decade reporting uh, on this in Mexico one of just the hardest things to see um, people go through The last two years of my life have been catastrophic. For me, my life has changed 360 degrees since they took away my son. Since then, I've become a human rights advocate and a searcher. We are searching because of love, not because we're getting paid for it. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Dina Kispe, Alexander Locke, Priyanka Tilbe, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Manuel Rapalo, 
Ricardo Lopez, and Imayan Ibanga. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, what are you waiting for? Go to this episode's description. You'll find extra information about the topic, but also our social media handles. We're at AJ the Take. And for more, just go to podcast.aljazeera.com slash the take.